What's up, everybody? I'm Ken Crump. This is the Mainstream Evangelical Podcast. This is episode two, and today we're talking about Christian nationalism. Uh, you know, this is a phrase that's come up in the last year or so uh, a lot, and many of you may be wondering, what exactly is Christian nationalism, and what's the big deal about it? Is it good? Is it bad? What exactly uh, does that mean? Now, if you're somebody listening to this podcast and you're kind of already half triggered with this and you know this is something that's bothering you, you don't like it, and you're listening because you want to see um, where I'm coming from with, with this subject, um, I would just encourage you, I would ask you to just listen to what I'm saying and, and do, what, do what the Apostle Paul told people to do. He said, go check it out for yourself. He told the Bereans when, when he preached there, he, he found them to be more, well, he didn't tell them something, but he found them to be more noble than other Christians because they searched the scriptures to see if what he was saying is true. And I'm going to ask you, search the scriptures, search, do some research, check out what I'm saying. Go ahead and fact check me. Um, I, I really, I hope that no matter what the conclusion people come to on these issues, when it comes to evangelicalism and, and uh, the political influence there, that people do their homework and people look stuff up and people ch fact check and people check sources. You know, it's, it's vital that we do this. I can't tell you how many times I've been about ready to hit that post button and I'm like, you know what, I need to back up here a second. I need to go look this up, make sure what I'm saying is right. And, and more times than I would like, I've had to say, wow, thank God I didn't hit post, man. Thank God I didn't shoot my mouth off. And there have been times when I did do that, and, uh, and then you just look stupid, you know, and that's not good for any of us. It's, it's important that if, you know, an opinion is, is one thing, but an educated opinion is something that's powerful, and it's important. What we believe, what we, what we profess, what we uh, want to promote. It's important that we know what we're talking about. It's important that we do the research. So let's start with number one, what is Christian nationalism? Now I got to tell you, the first time I heard this phrase, um, I knew what people were trying to say and it came from the left a lot. And um, I know what white nationalism is. And I looked at it like, oh, here we go again with the people on the far left. They're trying to tag evangelicals as a bunch of racists, as a bunch of bigots, as a bunch of, you know, people that go yell yeehaw and go to Klan meetings every night, you know, and um, that's what I thought was happening, you know. Um, but then we had the last four years um, during the Trump administration, I'm not trying to bash Trump here, I'm just saying during his administration, this stuff got really out of hand. And basically, you had a lot of evangelicals that lived up to that stereotype. And uh, I, I think any, you know, if you're objective, if you're honest, you're, you're going you're gonna to have to see that some of these things. So, so I'm going to ask you to listen to what I'm saying and, and tell me whether or not you think what I'm saying is correct, that this is a real issue, this is a real problem within evangelical Christianity. So let's look at some terms that uh, are related to this. Uh, first of all, 
let's look at the term patriotism. What does it mean to be a patriot? You know, Merriam-Webster says it's love for or devotion to one's country. Certainly nothing wrong with that. Uh, the Oxford Languages says it's the quality of being patriotic, devotion to, and vigorous support for one's country. Again, nothing wrong with that. Um, so let me give you my definition. And, and you know, I'm look, I'm a veteran. Uh, I've served in the military. I've uh, consider myself a patriot, you know, to to whatever people's definition of that is. But I, I consider myself to be have a healthy view of patriotism, and this is what I how I define patriotism. It would be a healthy pride in one's own national identity as a country, comprising numerous races, ethnicities, socioeconomic groups. It is a homogenous or diverse common identity, and I think that's really key to when we talk about what's patriotism and what can morph into something that's more unhealthy and an uh, exaggeration of patriotism, and that's something called nationalism. What is nationalism? Well, nationalism is identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interest of other nations' uh, advocacy or support for the political independence of a political nation or people. Again, that's from Oxford Languages. So this is not inclusive. This is a nationalism that's exclusive, a nationalism that says this is our view, this is who we are as a nation. Um, nationalism is an extreme form of patriotism that many times is linked to or is founded on racism. Uh, the majority of people in America are white, just a fact. America was founded by white people based on the exploitation of indigenous people and primarily African slaves that were brought to America against their will, hence the word slave. This is an unfortunate and sad truth. However, this also does not mean that all white people are inherently evil or racist or that everything that um, people have done, white people have done uh, up till now is wrong. All right. Um, you know, where I work, we have uh, students that come there uh, from other countries, from all over the world, which is really a cool thing for me. And, and, and I've been doing the type of work I do for about 30 years. I've met a lot of people from a lot of different countries. And, um, and one of the things, especially earlier on when I was still pretty conservative, um, you know, when I'm interacting with these people and talking to them, and I always find people interesting. So I want to ask them questions and know about them and know about where they're coming from and what their views of things are and everything. And, and I began to really, and I was, Big time into, you know, like America's the greatest nation in the world. We're the best. We're the best at everything. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with being, uh, having, taking pride in your country or, or having uh, a positive view of your nation. But, you know, I began to think about that. I thought, you know, I can't really say that. I can't really say that to someone from another country because th that's kind of rude. You know, like we're better than you is basically what you're saying. And I started to really give that some thought about how 
to approach people on how to discuss those issues. Because I talk to a lot of people, they come here, and of course they're going to say, you know, they're happy to be here. Some of them, I think, from poorer countries are probably a little more apprehensive, um, uh, you know, because America's a very rich and powerful country, and they're here, um, you know, many times because the State Department wants, um, there are countries that aren't really strong strategically, strategically, but they may have, there may be an oil interest there, there may be a, a part of the country where we want to put a base or or have influence uh, for a, a variety of reasons, and we'll bring people there to to this type of training. And they're from countries that aren't really very wealthy or anything. And I think some of them are a little intimidated about being here. And, you know, and I, I'm not a person; I don't want to be rude. And even even when I was very conservative, and um, I really felt uncomfortable making that statement to people. But then I started to think about, it and I thought, well, you know what, though, America is different, though. I mean, that's undeniable. I mean, just you know, economically and, and whether just creativity and freedom, uh, it's, it's a very unique situation. And that's kind of the conclusion I came to is not that we're the best, the greatest country in the world or that we're better than anyone else. I don't, I don't think it's a contest. I think every country has something to offer. Every country has things that work. Every country has things that don't work and they have problems. We just have different problems. But the conclusion I came to was that America is unique in that you probably have more freedom in more different ways here than you do anywhere else in the world. Now, I don't know that that's 100% fact, but I think it's, you know, it's, I think it's, that's a pretty fair statement, you know. So I had to really, you know, I, I, I just, I, I think it really kind of gave me a check on any type of uh, just, you know, not even deliberate nationalism, but just mentalities that we have here in America, okay? Again, I'm not saying you shouldn't be proud of your country. I'm not saying you shouldn't be patriotic, but you have to be careful. And if you're a considerate person, I think, just uh, just not be some, you know, jerk about these kinds of issues and uh, and and try to throw it in people's faces. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. That's just me. That's just the conclusion I came to. And I think that was one of the first things because it's easy to sit behind a computer and say stuff, but when you're talking to somebody face to face, if you're any kind of decent human being, that kind of gives you a little bit of a, uh, a check, you know, a little bit of a, it's a little harder to, to be so uh, bold and boisterous and maybe even reckless with, with what you say when you're looking right at somebody. And um, so that was something that I, you know, that was like my first experience really with, with thinking these issues through. Another thing we need to define is go from nationalism to white nationalism. Uh, now, white nationalism, and this is from the uh, Anti-Defamation League. This is their definition of white nationalism. White nationalism is a term that originated among white supremacists as a euphemism for white supremacy. Eventually, some white supremacists tried to distinguish it further by using it to refer to a form of white supremacy that emphasizes defining a country or region by white racial identity and which seeks to promote the interest of whites exclusively, typically at the expense of people of other backgrounds. So basically it's nationalism, but only for white people. And it promotes a white America, but at the expense of people that are not white. Now, here's another term that 
and all the a lot of these are related. These terms are related. Not all of them are, are you know nationalism certainly and white nationalism in the world and the word I'm about to use. These, these are these are not things that, that we want to be promoting. But certainly patriotism is something that's a good thing if it's healthy and if it's balanced. Uh, another one is fascism. You know, people use this word a lot. They throw it around a lot. Uh, but it's important to understand historically what fascism is. Uh, basically, it originated in Italy during the period just prior to and during World War II. Nazi Germany had its own version of fascism and nearly conquered all of Europe during World War II. So I'm going to read something here. This is the 25-point program of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, otherwise known as the Nazi Party. It consisted of nationalist and socialist principles. While there were some socialist principles in here, Hitler basically paid lip service to groups of people who were more interested in the socialist part. And Hitler always, But Hitler always had his own agenda, but needed these other political groups as stepping stones to his rise in power. So I'm going to read these different statements, these, these different principles of Nazism, and then I'm going to give you an a, a understanding of what the concept is uh, of, what, of what was said there. Number one, we demand the union of all Germans to form the greater Germany on the basis of the people's right to self-determination enjoyed by the nations, or the union of all German people in one German state, the German people's right to exist and determine their future without non-German interference, such as used as justification to annex countries with German populations, Austria, Sudanland, areas of Poland dominated by Germans. So the concept here was the right of a nation to act in its own interest unilaterally. So basically, the Germans are saying, we're going to do whatever we want, whatever we call Germany, that's Germany. And number two, we demand equality of rights for the German people in its dealings with other nations, and abolition of the peace treaties of Versailles and St. Germain. This was Germany's declaration of non-subservience to other nations by virtue of treaties or other means. And the concept here is the right of a nation to act in its own interest unilaterally by rejecting or breaking international treaties. Again, these are all aspects of fascism. They are aspects of what we call nationalism. And this is literally the principles that the Nazi party was based upon. Number three, we demand land and territory or colonies for the sustenance of our people and, and colonization for our superfluous population. In other words, the right to expand beyond its borders. So the concept is they have a right of a nation to annex other countries for its own interest, otherwise known as imperialism. Number four, none but the members of the nation may be citizens of the state. None but those of German blood, whatever their creed may be. No Jew, therefore, may be a member of the nation. Only those who are genetically pure Germans may be citizens, the explicit exclusion of Jews. So the concept is they're limiting citizenship to a particular race or predetermined group. This demonstrates a hostility to those who are considered foreigners. Any of this sound familiar yet? Number five, whoever has no citizenship is to be able to live in Germany only as a guest and must be regarded as being subject to foreign laws. 
Non, in other words, non-citizens have no right to live in Germany, but they, and they may be deported at any time. The concept is, rejects the idea of a right of permanent residency by allowing deportation without cause. Number six, the right of voting on the state's government and legislation is to be enjoyed by the citizen of the state alone. We demand, therefore, that all official appointments of whatever kind be granted to citizens of the state alone. We, we oppose the corrupting custom. We oppose the corrupting custom of Parliament of filling posts merely with a view to party considerations and without reference to character or capability. So what they're saying is only German citizens, which happen to only be pure-blooded Germans, may vote or hold office. So only citizens. The concept is only citizens may vote or hold office. The definition of a citizen determines the effect of this concept. Number seven, we demand that the state be charged first with providing the opportunity for a livelihood and way of life for the citizens. If it is impossible to nourish the total population of the state, then the members of foreign nations or non-citizens must be excluded from the Reich. Germans, in other words, German citizens are to be given priority over non-Germans regarding employment, if there are not enough jobs, then the foreigners must be excluded. So the concept is priority for employment of citizens before foreigners. Number eight, all immigration of non-Germans must be prevented. We demand that all non-Germans who have immigrated to Germany since 2 August 1914 be required to immediately leave the Reich. No, in other words, no foreign non-German immigration. Recent immigrants must be uh, deported. So the concept is a closed border to immigration. Number nine, all citizens of the state shall be equal as regards of rights and obligations. Only citizens or pure-blooded Germans then have equal rights. So the concept is only citizens have equal rights. Number 10, first obligation of every citizen must be to productively work mentally or physically. The activity of individual may not clash with the interest of the whole but must proceed within the framework of the whole for the benefit of the general good. So in other words, all citizens must work, all must work for, must be for the common good. So the, the point here, the concept here is that all citizens must work um, and all work must be for the common good rather than for the individual. And it goes on to say, we demand therefore, number 11, abolition of unearned work and labor incomes breaking of debt interest slavery, abolition of welfare for people who can work, freeing working class people from excessive interest debt. So there's some other things in there, but the biggest point here that he's talking about is the elimination of welfare. Number 12, in consideration of the monstrous sacrifice of life and property that each war demands of the people, personal enrichment due to a war must be regarded as a crime against the nation. That is uh, laws against war profiteering, which actually we do have that here in America. Uh, we don't have specific, I don't know that there are specific laws for that, but that's something that's frowned upon here in America as well. That not, isn't necessarily uh, a bad thing. He said, it goes on to say, therefore we demand ruthless confiscation of all war profits. So if someone was considered to be a war profiteer, they could go and uh, just take their, take their wealth from them. Number 13, we demand nationalization of all businesses which have been up to the present formed into companies or trusts. 
So in other words, all private companies are now to become state-owned, no private business ownership. So that's a power grab by the government. He's just basically uh, just taking all of these uh, businesses and uh, putting them under the umbrella of the government. So individual freedom is no longer uh, a part of this. That's more of the socialist part. But this was so, uh, so Hitler could use them uh, for his war machine and for his own purposes. Uh, number 14, we demand the profits from wholesale trades shall be shared out. So that's profit redistribution. Again, this is more of the socialist stuff that he wasn't so much concerned with and that the Reich wasn't so much concerned with. Uh, number 15, we demand an expansion on a large scale of old age welfare. So you have an extension, an expansion of public pensions for the elderly. So that would be more like social security. Again, this is something that he's using to gain favor with the people. Number 16, we demand the creation of a healthy middle class and its conservation, immediate uh, communalization of the great warehouses and they're being leased at low cost to small firms, the utmost consideration of all small firms and contracts with the state, county, or municipality. This is government assistance to small and middle class businesses. Again, the concept is he's trying to reach out to uh, working class people to gain their favor so he can um, do the uh, more dangerous things, more dangerous aspects of his of what he wanted was trying to uh, achieve. Um, number 17, we demand a land reform suitable to our needs, provision for of a law for the free exportation of land for the purposes of public utility, abolition of taxes on land, and prevention of all speculation in land. Now, this is more specific to that particular time. Uh, this was intended to harm Jewish-owned land speculation where Jewish-owned companies had, up, had, had obtained properly, according to them, illegally. This gave the state the right to seize all Jewish-owned property. Hitler still maintained the right of private property ownership by German citizens. So this was just used specifically to uh, confiscate property and land and wealth from Jewish people. Uh, number 18, we demand struggle without consideration against those who act, whose activity is injurious to the general interest. Common national criminals, usurers, profiteers, and so forth shall be punished with death without consideration of confession or race. So in other words, anyone considered a threat to Germany would be deemed an enemy of the state and arrested and executed at will. So the rule of law did not really apply in Nazi Germany. Um, so people who are deemed enemy of the state could be executed at will. Uh, number 19, we demand substitution of a German common law in place of the Roman law serving a materialistic world order. So to have a purely German common law system, Roman law, civil protections for the citizens would run counter to an authoritarian state. Because much of the, you know, even in America, we still, uh, one of the reasons we use Latin is because we are ba our, our legal system is based on English and Roman law. Um, and there are many uh, decisions and concepts that have come up through the centuries in our legal systems for, you know, over a thousand years. Um, that have uh, brought themselves into our, our modern day law system. And these concepts of freedom and equity um, have been, and, and what's, you know, what's fair, what's right, have, have been accumulating. So he's basically throwing all that aside to uh, have a purely German common law system, which basically is going to be whatever he says it is. 
Number 20, the state is to be responsible for a fundamental reconstruction of our whole national education program to enable every capable and industrious German to obtain higher education and subsequently introduction into leading positions. The plans of instruction of all educational institutions are to conform with the experiences of practical life. The, comprehens the comprehension of the concept of the state must be striven for by the schools. As early as the beginning of understanding, we demand the education at the expense of the state out outstanding intellectually gifted children of poor parents without consideration of position or profession. So in other words, they want to promote education, but only as it pertains to the interest of the state or the Reich or basically whatever Hitler says. Um, so that's not so much education as it is brainwashing. Number 21, the state is to care for the elevating national health by protecting the mother and the child, by outlawing child labor, by the encouragement of physical fitness, by means of the legal establishment of a gymnastic and sports obligation, by the utmost support of all organizations concerned with the physical instruction of the young. So promotion of physical health. Obviously, though, for the sake of the state, for the sake of the Reich, for the sake of Hitler. Number 22, we demand ab abolition of mercenary troops and formation of a national army so only German people may be in the army. So concept is that only citizens may save in the military, so no foreigners. And number 23, we demand legal opposition to the known lies and their promulgation through the press in order to enable the provision of a German press, we demand that all writers and employees of newspapers appearing in the German language be members of the race. Non-German newspapers be required to have the express permission of the state to be published. They may not be printed in the German language. Non-Germans are forbidden by law any financial interest in German publications or any influence on them as deemed punishment for violations, the closing of such a publication, as well as the immediate expulsion from the Reich of the non-German concern publications which are counter to the general good are to be forbidden. We demand legal prosecution of artistic and literary forms which exert a destructive influence on our national life and the closure of organizations opposing the above made demand. So in other words, the state regulates the press. Only pure born Germans may print in German Non-German publications may only exist with permission and they may not own any publications or print them in, Germ in the German language. So you have a complete power grab here uh, of, the, of the free press. And the press is incredibly important in any democracy. You cannot have democracy without free press because when you don't have legal power, the, you, know, you, you may not be able to go into uh, uh, the court, a civil court, or a criminal court uh, to get justice, but you still have the court of public opinion. And if you can sway uh, public opinion in your direction, that also is a type of power, and that can only happen with a free press. Uh, so when people are being oppressed, the people in the, in the media step up and they speak out, and as you, you can see, many cases, these people sometimes pay for that uh, with their very own lives. It's a very important job. Um, you know, so it's important to have a free press. Yes, sometimes the press is corrupt. Sometimes people don't understand the difference between journalism and propaganda. It's true. And the press will always lean left 
as do you know things such as law, science, education, uh, the press. These things all tend to lean left. So even if you are an honest, decent conservative running for office for good reason, uh, you're going to have an uphill battle. So yeah, fake news can be a real thing, uh, but at the same time, not everything is fake news, and you have to have a free press uh, in order to have uh, democracy. Number 24, we demand freedom of religion for all religious denominations within the state so long as they do not endanger its existence or oppose the moral sense of the German race. The party as such advocates the standpoint of a positive Christianity without binding itself confessionally to any one denomination. It combats the Jewish materialistic spirit within and around us and is convinced that a lasting recovery of our nation can only succeed within on the framework. So the good of community comes before the good of the individual. Uh, religion is permitted but subjected to the needs of the state. Free exercise of religion that criticizes the state is forbidden. So the concept is that religious beliefs are to be subjugated to political goals. In other words, you can be as religious as you want, but if you come against the state, then we're going to step all over you. Number 25, the last one, the execution of all this. We demand the formation of a strong central power in the Reich, unlimited authority, of the central parliament over the whole Reich and its organizations in general, the forming of state and profession chambers for the execution of the laws made by the Reich within the various states of the Confederation, the leaders of the party promise, if necessary, by sacrificing their own lives to support the execution of the points set forth above without consideration. So basically, this is the centralization of power uh, within uh, the German state. So this is the consolidation of national power. So why did I read all these? Because I think it's important that we actually understand what fascism is, what Nazism is. Um, certainly there are other things you could go into historically about uh, the Third Reich and what happened during that time. But these were the principles, um, and for the most part, they stuck to them. Um, certainly there are some things in here, uh, you know, not everything that any dictator, or like, any person that wants to get into power, they have to give people something. So some of the things, not everything in here was wrong, but the majority of it was, or at least the way it was used, even the things that were actually right things or things that would be good for any nation, he still used that in order to empower himself, empower the state, uh, empower the Reich. So I, I think when you, when you actually have the facts as to what fascism really is and what it really means to be a Nazi. And then you use that to filter some of the rhetoric we hear. And you do occasionally hear some things on the left that line up with this stuff too. Because there's an aspect of this where whether you have communism or you have uh, some type of evil monarchy or you have a, um, uh, some type of totalitarian government, there's all kinds of examples you could use for this. Um, whenever, whenever you look at that, there are some common things that all of them, whether on the right or the left, where democracy does not exist. Um, is democracy perfect? No, it's not. It can be very bureaucratic. It can be hard to get things done. There's a lot of corruption. Sometimes uh, people in power are strengthened and people that don't have power and are weak are hurt in democracy. So 
Um, it's not perfect, but it's still the best thing we have. And it's certainly better than any type of totalitarian or centralization of power uh, that, that we have. Um, so let's look now. Now, we've looked at all these different things here. We looked at fascism. We looked at nationalism. We looked at white nationalism. We looked at what it means to be patriotic. So let's look at what Christian nationalism is. And I have a quote here. This is from an article by Paul D. Miller, dated February 3rd, 2021, in Christianity Today, uh, of the definition of an article about Christian nationalism. And the article is entitled, What is Christian Nationalism? And he says this, quote, Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Popularly, Christian nationalists assert that America is and must remain a Christian nation, not merely as an observation about American history, but as a prescriptive program for what America must continue to be in the future. Scholars like Samuel Huntington have made a similar argument that America is defined by its Anglo-Protestant past and that we will lose our identity and our freedom if we do not preserve our cultural inheritance. Christian nationalists do not reject the First Amendment and do not advocate for theocracy, but they do, do believe that Christianity should enjoy a privileged position in the public square. The term Christian nationalism is relatively new, and it advocates, and its advocates generally do not use it themselves, but it accurately describes American nationalists who believe American identity is inextricable from Christianity. Christian nationalism is a theologically baseless position that America is a Christian nation and its laws should reflect a Christian worldview. It's basically saying that Christians own America, and we must protect it from the inherently evil, liberal, progressive Democrats. That's, in a nutshell, what Christian nationalism is. You know, America is 5% of the global population, and yes, we're a powerful nation, yes, we've done a lot of things, uh, but the idea um, that Christians own America is, is really not a Christian-based idea. This is a politically based idea. And what's happened with Christian nationalism is you have people that have taken nationalism and mixed it with, uh, Christian, with Christian principles. So you have a mixture of these pagan ideas and Christian ideas, and it can be very confusing for people because people think, because this is what they're just taught. I mean, they may not be taught expressly, but this is just what everybody around them believes and they absorb this, this mentality, this mindset, that every concept uh, that's conservative uh, or on the right is, is some, something that, that's faith-based, that's Christian-based. And that's not necessarily the case. So let's look at some of these concepts and discuss them. Uh, number one, is America a Christian nation? Because that's what these people say. They say American is a Christian nation. Well, not necessarily. Historically speaking, yes, since the majority of people who helped found America were Christians, and today, even though the numbers are slipping, nearly two-thirds of Americans identify as Christian. However, our founders were very leery of ceding religious control to our government as well as ceding power to the government over religious affairs. The religious clause of the First Amendment uh, implies a neutrality regarding religion. 
While Thomas Jefferson was not directly involved in, direct, in, in drafting the religious clause of the First Amendment, his Virginia statute for religious freedom is said to have heavily influenced it. Uh, there is nothing in the United States Constitution or laws that would indicate that America is a Christian nation. Furthermore, the religious clause of the First Amendment and numerous case law decisions would indicate that America is not a Christian nation. However, it should also be noted that the same Constitution prevents the government from being hostile toward people of faith and in no way promotes atheism either. During Washington's presidency, the treaty with Tripoli, approved and unanimously by the Senate in 1797, Article 11 of the treaty states that the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Now that's from the administration of George Washington. You don't really hear that quote very much on right-wing radio or TV. Um, in 1892, the Supreme Court Justice David Brewer declared in Holy Trinity versus United States that America is a Christian nation. Uh, and sometimes people will use this uh, to declare that America is a Christian nation. Uh, the Holy Trinity decision has rarely been cited as president by other courts, and the Christian nation comment was considered indicta, which means it was the judge's personal opinion, not a mandate of the law. Also, it's unclear exactly what Brewer meant. In a book he wrote in 1905, Brewer pointed out that the United States is Christian in a cultural sense, not a legal one. Uh, number three, the United States Constitution is based on Christian principles. Now, the founders were certainly influenced by Christian thought, but there are other non-Christian influences as well. As previously mentioned, there is no express statement in the Constitution that, uh, that documents America having any religious affiliation. Uh, number four, is America founded on Christian principles? Uh, well, there are certainly numerous Christian principles that parallel current legal principles. Nobody has any issue with premeditated murder being illegal, but I don't know that you can say it's based on Christianity. Uh, there is no denial that Christian thought influenced many of the founders, but to say that America is exclusively based on Christian principles would be a stretch. Number five, public policy should be based on the Bible. Listen to me. Public policy should never be based on religion, any religion. Not because there's anything wrong with the moral implications in the Bible, but because theology is subjective. So even if you have legislation that parallels Christian thought, you still need to make a coherent argument based on facts, evidence, logic, and science where applicable. Number six, can you legislate morality? Um, you know, people say you can't legislate morality. Well, that's true and not true. Um, all laws have a moral basis. So all laws have, have, are, are basically um, legislating some moral imperative. Uh, drunk driving laws are based on the idea that it's morally wrong to risk the lives of the general public or passengers or even the driver themselves by allowing people to drive a motor vehicle while intoxicated. However, when it comes to victimless crimes, most Americans don't feel compelled to impose morality, especially religion-based morality, on people using the legal system. Uh, so when it comes to integrity that's taught in the Bible, people have no issue with people being honest or legislation that requires transparency or ethics standards. Um, legislation that involves compassion, such as helping the poor or health care, again, 
Most people have no issue with this. But when you try to legislate what could be called holiness or righteousness within the Christian faith, that's a personal choice within Christianity that has no place in our legal system. Number seven, Christians have a duty to influence every area of life, including government. Nowhere in the Bible do you find Jesus or the apostles telling us uh, or demonstrating the idea that we're to reform Gentile governments. Only in regard to the ability to preach the gospel or severe oppression should Christians step into public policy and try to advance the gospel uh, in, in our legal system. Furthermore, tying the gospel to political issues tends to drag the name of Jesus uh, through the mud. So we can't really, uh, it's, it's really inappropriate for us to try to force people um, to do things just because the Bible says so. That's not what our job is as Christians. Nowhere are we told to do this. Nowhere did Jesus or the apostles tell us to do any of this. Our job is to win the lost. Our job is to preach the gospel. Um, there's nothing wrong with running a Christian running for office. There's nothing wrong with uh, people of faith proposing legislation that, that may parallel morality in the Bible, but you can't force that on people, especially when it comes to per people's personal behavior um, that doesn't really affect other people. Uh, when it comes to sexuality, in other such issues, it's, it's really not our place to try to force that on people. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to do that. Um, and I think you're going to find most Americans feel that two consenting adults, how they live their lives is their business as long as they're not harming anyone else or breaking any you know, laws that we already have. Um, there's no reason why that uh, shouldn't be the case. Now, as a Christian, I can't advocate... Uh, for example, homosexuality, but the Obergefell decision that um, established people's right to marry, um, I think that's the correct decision based on our uh, constitution, based on our legal system, based on who we are as a people. It's basically saying that gay people have the same rights as people of faith or anyone else. Um, they fought for that. They established it. And I don't think we as Christians should be trying to roll that back. I think we need to stay in our lane, and uh, people in that group need to stay in their lane and try to stop trying to tell us how to run our churches. I mean, that's, that's where the line is for me. It, it ends at the doorstep of the church. You know, outside of that, as far as, you know, what people do uh, in public or who you serve as a business, I don't see why you shouldn't, you know, because you bake a cake for somebody's gay wedding doesn't mean you endorse gay, gay marriage or homosexuality. simply means you're a business and these people came to you for a job and you did the job for them. There's no connection there. Now, if you're a minister and you say, I'm not going to marry you because that would literally be me putting my stamp of approval on your marriage, then yeah, I can understand that. As a matter of fact, the Obergefell decision, which gave people in the gay community, the right to marry, also re reinstates, or not reinstates, but uh, restates the religious exemption that exists under our Constitution for people of faith not to be compelled or forced to do something that's against their faith in regard to marriage. You know, so uh, in the public square, I think, you know, there needs to be equality and there needs to be 
um, some type of uh, uh, legal system that protects everyone equally. But when you have people on the far left that try to advance their position by discriminating against people on the right, you know, you don't advance the rights of one group of people by discriminating against the rights of others. So Christian nationalism is like Christian supremacy in a sense, or Christian privilege, you could say, saying that it's our job, and the majority of this is based on the white view of Christianity, and saying and trying to force that on everybody else. And the problem is America is not just white people. And those mindsets that you find, and yeah, nobody's out there with a 25-point plan like the Nazis, okay? And, and rewording it, but having the same concepts. Nobody's going to do that. But you, can, but you can tell that there are certain principles within those 25 points that maybe came to mind when I was reading them that you've heard politicians say, that you've heard people say and, and do things that uh, would seem to imply that very concept, but maybe in a different way. You know, people aren't stupid. They're not going to, you know, there's never going to be another Hitler because the conditions that created somebody like him don't exist anymore. But there are people like him, you know, but you have people like, uh, you know, in other countries that annex other countries and then stop, you know, you have people that are world leaders that do things, but they know where the line is and they know they can only do so much. Otherwise, the world's going to galvanize against them. So it's kind of like, you know, fascism light or, or, or these types of dictators. They know where the line is. They know where to stop because they know the democratic free countries aren't together enough to really oppose them. So they take advantage of that. But this type of thing, Christian nationalism, uh, the idea that we somehow as Christians own America, that white Christian policies are the way America should be taught is not something that's taught in the Bible. This is something that's been imposed upon people of faith. This has been imposed upon evangelicals by political people and political handlers who want to use evangelical votes to get their people in power. Okay, that's what this is about. And people are not paying attention and not taking the time because they, some of people just like the power. They like the ride. They want to be, uh, you know, they want to ride into power also with these very issues. So Christian nationalism is not something that's found in the Bible. It's something that's akin to idol worship. Uh, certainly a lot of people, uh, there are a number of evangelicals that have stepped away from this and said this is heresy to try to mix these things. This is not our job. Our job is not to politicize um, the gospel. Our job is to win the lost. Our job is to win people. Our job is to communicate the gospel. And, you know, Jesus didn't force anything upon anybody. Jesus didn't have a political agenda. Jesus just went around helping people and gave his very life so that we all could live. Uh, so this is the complete is completely contrary uh, to what Jesus did and said. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be conservative. There's nothing wrong, you know, with with having that viewpoint. But when you try to tag it with, you, you try to wrap it with some Christian cloak or some Christian, uh, you know, wrapper, you know, and say, well, this is Christianity, uh, then you stepped over the line, all right? Uh, you know, there is no such thing as a 
as a, uh, a Christian worldview regarding politics or Christian values that we need in our political system. This is nothing more than people trying to impose their will on other people without their consent. You know, and that is not the Bible. That is not what Jesus did. That is not what the apostles did. Search the scriptures. You'll find that Jesus didn't involve himself in politics. The apostles didn't involve themselves in politics. It wasn't until Constantine, and then the church sold their soul to Constantine, and there was an intermixing of church and state. That's when all this started. And really, if you go study the history of Constantine and what happened there with the church, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people of faith celebrate Constantine as someone that, that gave us, you know, rights. Well, you know, we don't need a pagan ruler to give us rights. We do what we do based on the authority that God gives us to preach the gospel. This is something that's very dangerous. I think it's something that's unhealthy. Uh, it's something that we need to step away from and that evangelicals need to reject because it's not based on the Bible. It's not based on love. It's not based on the Word of God. It's not based on the teachings of Jesus or the apostles. So I hope this has helped you today. Thanks for listening to the Mainstream Evangelical Podcast. I hope this was a blessing to you. God bless you.